0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the Friday, September 16th, 2022 reading of the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker. On today's program, for some patients, long COVID symptoms mask something else, from Wired. And, what they aren't telling you about hypoallergenic dogs from the Atlantic, plus how a simple sentence and a tennis metaphor can save relationships from imploding from the LA Times and more time permitting. Here's our first report. For some patients, long COVID symptoms mask something else. The condition may be common, but issues like fever, shortness of breath and fatigue can also be signs of other illnesses. By Grace Huckins from Wired. It was overuse of acetaminophen that finally led to Nick Peterman's cancer diagnosis. For months, the then 26-year-old had been contending with exhaustion, night sweats, recurring fevers, and abdominal pain so debilitating that she regularly woke up in the middle of the night to take soothing baths. Her persistent flu like symptoms, she'd read online, were probably just the lingering effects of a COVID infection she'd had in January 2021. The pain was the odd symptom out, but an ultrasound had turned up nothing. Come June, the pain was too much to bear. Peterman called a telehealth hotline and was immediately referred to the hospital after the staff heard how much acetaminophen she had been taking. After extensive testing, Peterman finally had an answer. All her symptoms, including those that seemed to be long COVID, were due to stage 4 Hodgkin's lymphoma. She started chemotherapy the next day. Today, Peterman is in remission, though she still deals with the long-term consequences of the aggressive, months-long chemo. If she hadn't assumed most of her symptoms were due to long COVID, she says, she may have received proper treatment and a diagnosis much earlier. When I went to get my pain symptoms checked out, I didn't mention the flu-like symptoms because I just thought that was something that I would have to deal with, she says. Most people with Peterman's symptoms won't end up in her position. Long COVID is common. Estimates of its prevalence vary widely, but even the most conservative studies imply that millions of people are dealing with long-lasting symptoms of their infections. Hodgkin's lymphoma, on the other hand, is rare. But with dozens of possible symptoms, long COVID can be easily confused with countless other conditions, including cardiovascular diseases such as hypertension and diabetes, autoimmune diseases like lupus and multiple sclerosis, and cancer. Add the fact that COVID can make pre-existing conditions worse, and determining whether or not someone has long COVID becomes a daunting task. Parsing these vast sets of alternatives has become the responsibility of clinicians on the vanguard of long COVID care, from the primary care physicians, whom patients first seek out, to the experts who staff long COVID clinics. For each patient, they must perform a careful differential diagnosis, a medical term for the process of considering every possible cause of a patient's set of symptoms. Accurate differential diagnosis is essential, not just for getting patients' care, but also for furthering medical understanding of a still obscure condition. We need to be cautious not to turn long COVID into a catch-all diagnosis, says Linda Gang, co-director of the Stanford Post-Acute COVID-19 Syndrome Clinic. In the absence of any objective tests, however, long COVID remains a diagnosis of exclusion one that is made only after other reasonable possibilities have been exhausted. Recent data suggests that many patients will emerge from this process with a diagnosis not of long COVID, but of something else. A July paper in Nature that analyzed the medical records of more than 2 million patients in the UK found that while 5.4% of those with a previous COVID infection had at least one long COVID symptom recorded in their charts, 4.5% without evidence of infection also had at least one symptom. In other words, long COVID symptoms are meaningfully common in people who have never contracted COVID. So even those who have had the illness might be experiencing persistent symptoms for unrelated reasons, says Shamil Haroon, Associate Clinical Professor of Public Health at the University of Birmingham and the Nature Studies senior author. Harun notes that these numbers are likely vast underestimates. Many doctors only write patient symptoms in the free text portion of patient charts, which the study did not examine. Similarly, an August paper published in The Lancet found that 21% of recent COVID patients in the Netherlands reported at least one symptom that worsened after their COVID infection, whereas 9% with no evidence of infection had similar symptoms. These high-level statistics are borne out by the experiences of long COVID specialists. By the time someone makes it to their clinics, they've usually already been through testing elsewhere, typically with their primary care provider, and the most obvious alternatives have been considered and rejected. And yet many patients leave these clinics with a diagnosis they did not expect. Fernando Carnivali site coordinator for the Center for Post-COVID Care at Mount Sinai West in New York, described the situation as not uncommon. Nisha Viswanathan, director of the UCLA Health Long COVID Program, estimates that a quarter of the patients she sees end up diagnosed with something other than long COVID. This can be a matter of urgency. You wouldn't want to miss shortness of breath being caused by a sudden blood clot in the lungs or chest pain being caused by a heart attack, says Jason Malley, director of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center Critical Illness and COVID-19 Survivorship Program. More often, though, differential diagnosis is a long, sometimes discouraging process that involves interrogating multiple explanations for each symptom. Patients might come in with half a dozen or more distinct complaints. Different clusters of those complaints suggest different potential explanations, creating a combinatorial explosion of diagnostic possibilities. The differential diagnosis is immense, Carnavali says. That is the challenge. That's not to say it's impossible. Directors at specialty clinics have seen enough long COVID patients that they can identify some characteristic patterns. Michael Brody, medical director of UT Health Austin's post-COVID-19 program, says that almost all of the long COVID patients he has seen start developing their symptoms within six weeks of their infection. If there's a longer delay, he suspects something else. Symptoms that group together can help point doctors toward what that something else might be. Most of the long COVID patients Brody sees who exhibit fatigue and the sluggish thinking known as brain fog are also dealing with post-exertional malaise extreme exhaustion after physical mental or emotional effort so when a man came into his clinic with the first two symptoms but not the third brody suspected that something else might be going on he eventually discovered that the patient was dealing with a large benign brain tumor a benign brain tumor may not seem like good news unlike long covid though it is curable Clinicians don't have many tools for alleviating long COVID beyond lifestyle changes and rehabilitation exercises. While these can make an enormous difference, they don't necessarily offer the same sucker as a pill or a surgery. Even Peterman, who received a cancer diagnosis, described the relief of actually knowing what it was and knowing there was going to be a treatment, she said. Yet a long COVID diagnosis can also be a form of solace and validation. People often come to my clinic and are just relieved for me to explain why I think their symptoms fit with what we've seen with long COVID, Malley says. Going through a diagnostic process based on excluding other problems can be frustrating, with the patients receiving endless, so-called normal, test results despite feeling that something is wrong. Normal doesn't mean everything they're going through is normal, Brody says, he tells his patients. It just means it's not something else, he says. Patients have come to him describing symptoms so unusual that they expect he won't believe them, an internal vibrating sensation, for example, and Brody is able to tell them that not only are their symptoms real, but he has seen them in a number of other long COVID patients. Not all patients have access to this kind of expertise, Most U.S. states have only a few long COVID clinics. Some have none at all. Some patients don't have a primary care doctor. As a result, long COVID clinicians have had to take on the role of filling gaps in the nation's medical system. Carnavali recalls one patient whom he diagnosed not with long COVID, but with uncontrolled diabetes so severe that the person needed immediate treatment these clinics, however, were not designed to carry the full weight of chronic illness care in a broken health care system. This is all very much indicative of a system that had never anticipated these kinds of care needs, Viswanathan says. And their care also doesn't reach patients who, like Peterman, delay testing because they've already chalked their symptoms up to long COVID. As doctors see more suspected long COVID cases, they will become increasingly skilled at its differential diagnosis, but patients will have to seek out that expertise. As a UK resident, Peterman could take advantage of her country's socialized healthcare system. Even so, it took many months for her to get her cancer diagnosis. If she could do it all over again, she says, she would have asked doctors about all of her symptoms, not just her pain and asked them to consider other possibilities when scans didn't turn up anything. If you know something's wrong, she says, push for answers. Up next, what they aren't telling you about hypoallergenic dogs. There's no such thing as a dog that can't cause allergies, by Sarah Zhang from The Atlantic. As someone with dog allergies who nevertheless has been around many dogs as a trainer a fosterer, and an owner, Candace has learned not to trust the promise of a hypoallergenic dog. She's met low-shedding, hypoallergenic poodles, and Portuguese water dogs that supposedly shouldn't trigger her allergies, yet very much did. But she has also met fluffy, long-haired breeds such as huskies and spitzes that set off nary a sneeze. I've had more misery with short-haired dogs, she told me. That includes her own Belgian Malinois, Fiore, with whom her symptoms got so bad that she started allergy shots. Fiore's equally furry, full sister, Fernando, though, totally fine. No reaction. Candace, whose last name I'm not using for medical privacy reasons, is not alone in discerning no rhyme or reason to which dog she's allergic to. In studies, scientists have found no difference in how much of the dog allergen TAN-F1 is present in homes with hypoallergenic versus non-hypoallergenic breeds. One study found no difference in the amount of allergen on the fur of different dogs either. Another actually found more allergen on the fur of hypoallergenic breeds. Hypoallergenic doesn't seem to mean much at all. There's really truly no completely 100% hypoallergenic dog. Even hairless dogs can make the allergen, says John James, a spokesperson for the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America. It's really a marketing term, says David Stuckis, an allergist at Nationwide Children's Hospital and a member of AAFA's Medical Scientific Council. When I asked several allergists around the country if perplexed owners ever come in allergic to their expensive, supposedly hypoallergenic dog, their answers were unequivocal. All the time. One of the biggest sources of misinformation on this topic is, in fact, a former U.S. president. When President Obama was in office, they allegedly had a hypoallergenic dog because their daughter had allergies, and that didn't help matters, Stuckis told me, referring to the Obama's first Portuguese water dog, Bo. Everybody got Portuguese water dogs, he said, and surprise, they can still cause allergies. Technically, hypoallergenic means that a dog is less likely to cause allergies, not that it never causes allergies, though this distinction is often lost in colloquial use. But even then, there is no such thing as a consistently hypoallergenic breed. That's because, although breeds that shed less fur or hair are commonly considered hypoallergenic, the fur or hair itself is not what causes allergies. Rather, it is proteins present in the dander, or small flakes of skin, or saliva. All dogs make these proteins, and all dogs have skin and saliva. It is true, though, that a person might find one dog less allergenic than another. The studies that couldn't find a clear pattern of lower allergens in hypoallergenic breeds did find differences among individual dogs of the same breed, and a smaller dog is generally going to shed less dander than a big one. On size alone, it does make sense that a Chihuahua is less problematic than a Great Dane, says Richard Lockey, an allergist at the University of South Florida. Dogs also make a whole suite of proteins that can cause allergies. The best known is CAN F1, although there are seven others. Some people might be more allergic to one of these proteins than another. Some dogs might make more of one of these proteins than another. Whether a particular human actually ends up allergic to a particular dog depends on these details and can't be predicted from the breed alone. For this reason, doctors recommend that anyone with allergies spend time with a specific dog before taking it home. I literally say, have your child hug them, rub their face on them. If nothing happens, that's a good sign, Stuckis said. People who are allergic can also develop tolerance to a specific dog over time. Candace, for example, eventually developed a tolerance to her German Shepherd mix, Tesla, despite getting all watery eyed and sneezy at first. In addition, allergy shots, also called immunotherapy, can help people build up tolerance by gradually increasing exposure to an allergen. Canvas eventually resorted to them with Fiore. The inverse of this principle explains the Thanksgiving effect, where people who leave for college come home suddenly allergic to their childhood pet after not being exposed for a long time. Nasal steroid sprays and antihistamines, such as Claritin and Allegra, which are available over-the-counter, can also be used to manage allergies these days. That wasn't always the case, recalls Lockie, who began practicing medicine in the 1960s. Back then, there weren't good medications for controlling allergies— and he would just tell patients to keep their pets outdoors. That just doesn't go anymore, he told me. Now, few dogs are kept exclusively outdoors, especially in cities. They sleep in our homes and even our beds. As dogs have become more physically enmeshed in our lives, dog allergies can no longer be as easily ignored as when the animals lived outside. The myth of an allergy-free dog persists, though, and Stuckis often sees this frustration play out in families with allergic kids. This is the point that I hear all the time from families. It's the grandparents, he told me. Parents might quickly discover that their kids are allergic to so-called hyperallergenic dogs. But grandparents, eager for their grandkids to visit, push back because their expensive pet is supposed to be hypoallergenic. The Obamas had the same dog. It's fine, only for the kids to end up coughing and miserable. He keeps hearing the same lament. They just don't understand, the parents tell him that there's no such thing as a hypoallergenic dog. Up next, how a single sentence and a tennis metaphor can save relationships from imploding, by Jessica Benda from the Los Angeles Times. If an argument were a tennis match, many of us would tear right through the net during a frenzy of back-and-forth spatting. That's a situation hundreds of Stanford students learned to avoid in one of the business school's most popular electives for decades. Now the masterminds behind the course, David Bradford and Carol Robin want everyone, not just those who can afford Stanford, to know the secret to staying on your side of the net during an argument. The solution, which Bradford devised in 1969, is one simple sentence. When you do, insert action, I feel, insert feeling. An argument has three pillars, which Bradford and Robin describe as realities. Your intention and motivation, which only you can see. Your behavior, which everyone can see. The effect of your behavior, which only the other person can see. If you make a comment that implies you know what someone else's motives or intentions are, you're over the net. We think we know, but it's really a guess, says Bradford, a psychology expert who focuses on business leadership at Stanford. Bradford and Robin explained this thinking and other tactics from their interpersonal dynamics class, nicknamed Touchy-Feely by students, in their book Connect. Robin, who no longer lectures at Stanford, incorporates these lessons into a program for Silicon Valley executives called Leaders in Tech. Crossing the net sparks defensiveness and leaves you vulnerable to endless rebuttals. You can say you just want to show how smart you are, and the other person can say, no, I don't, and then you're stuck, Bradford explains. But addressing your own point of view, how you feel, is indisputable. The other can't say, no, you don't, because they can't say how you feel. That's where the sentence comes in. It can be hard to grasp at first. Sometimes people slip into, I feel, without actually including an emotion. When I show up late repeatedly to meetings and you're feeling annoyed, the tendency for most people is to say, I feel that you don't care. While there is not a single feeling word in there, Robin says, then what you've done is you're over the net. Unless I say I don't care, then you're making up a story based on my behavior, Robin says. For those still struggling to stay on their side of the net, Robin says you need to eliminate two words. It is grammatically impossible to express a feeling in English followed by the word that or like. I feel that angry? I feel that disappointed? I feel like happy? No, it's grammatically impossible, Robin says. Drop the like... And the that, get disciplined about I feel, insert feeling word, she says. Messing up is inevitable. Trying to figure out others' motivations is a way for people to get a sense of control in a confusing world, Bradford says. Even he doesn't follow his own advice perfectly, but an apology can go a long way. He recommends accepting that you'll mess up sometimes and teaching yourself to recognize when you do. I can say, I'm sorry I said that. What was really going on for me was I was feeling ignored and put down, Bradford says. We don't have to do it perfectly. We can correct ourselves, he says. Robin often hears from alumni about how they used the sentence to preserve a relationship, whether it be with a partner, friend, or colleague. Years after taking the class, a former skeptical student turned big-time Silicon Valley engineer emailed her about how the sentence helped his staff. During a disengaged meeting, he instructed everyone to go around and use the sentence. When someone said, I feel like we're wasting our time, he advised them to use feeling words. By the end, the energy shifted as people unpacked how they felt so he could address the underlying issues. One of the biggest relationship challenges is that people don't tell each other the truth about their feelings and the impact of someone else's behavior, Robin says. They're not willing to be vulnerable enough to say, this really matters to me, or I'm scared or hurt. And so they don't build the kind of trust that's built if you're willing to say more to each other, Robin says. The main hallmarks of building strong relationships, it starts with disclosure. You have to be willing and allow yourself to be known by the other person, Robin says. That applies to people on both sides of the net. One of the things we really stress in the course is all of this is a choice. So when people say, well, I can't, we say, no, you choose not to, Bradford says. We want people to take responsibility for their behavior. And that, I think, is really important because so often we don't take responsibility for our actions. Bradford says. Up next, before alarm clocks, there were knocker uppers from GreatBigStory.com. Imagine life without alarm clocks. Workdays would start at noon, breakfast would be brunch, and no one would make it to class before the first bell. From the early 1800s through the 1960s, factory workers didn't have much of a choice. To get to work on time, they relied on knocker uppers, also known as human alarm clocks. Using long bamboo sticks or pea shooters, Britain's knocker uppers would stroll down the streets, rapping at windows to help their patrons kickstart their days. Up next, Stand Up to Diabetes from Consumer Reports on Health. People who spent more time on their feet had better insulin sensitivity a sign of healthier blood sugar processing and a lower risk of type 2 diabetes, in a small study. It was about twice as good in those who stood at least 120 minutes per day compared with those whose daily standing time was less than 90 minutes, regardless of body weight or physical activity. The source is the Journal of Science and Medicine in Sport. Thank you for joining us for the Human Health Program. My name is Emily Crocker.